Thanks to the kids who stuck around. Amen. That was great. That was good. It's kind of a lighter crowd. I've learned. It's the last time I warn you a week in advance that I'm coming up here. <laughs> I'm chalking it up to vacation season. I'm not taking it personally. Um, I am going to be revisiting James chapter 1. Last week we looked at uh, verses 1 through 18, and today we're going to look at the rest of the chapter. Uh, for those that want to follow along, I'm going to read that uh, for us in a few minutes. But before I do that, I thought I'd just take a little opportunity to tell you kind of personally why I wanted to spend a little time in the book of James these couple of weeks. Um, I mean, I mentioned last time that it was kind of a fitting follow-up to the book of Proverbs, just be, being part of the wisdom literature, and, and that's true, but there's a little bit more to it than that. And uh, James is actually probably my favorite book of the Bible, one of my favorites. I know you're probably not supposed to say that, right? That's a lot like saying you have a favorite child. And of course, I don't, though all of my kids could tell you who it is. <laughs> no, not really. Um, on any given day, I might pick one over the others, but that has a little more to do with a back rub or a dish of ice cream than who they really are. So that's, that's not a fair judge of my children. But when it comes to Scripture, we do have preferences, and it's just who we are. Um, it's just the way we are. We, we underline verses. We put things up on the wall. We put them on our fridge. We memorize things. Um, even Jesus quoted Scriptures, but he didn't quote the whole Old Testament, so I don't think it's a big deal if we say, hey, these are favorite scriptures that affect us more than others. Uh, I, I loved what um, uh, Rich Mullins, the late songwriter, said one time. He said that uh, he traveled all over the world uh, singing and, and performing, and so he'd met a lot of different people in different cultures. And he figured if we took Christians from all different parts of the world and could, could take their Bibles and smush them up into one big Bible, everything would be underlined from beginning to end. Because it's just how we operate, and different things impact us differently. And, and James has been um, a special book for me. It, it's just one of those things I can pick up at any point in my life, and I have a number of times, and I can start reading through it, and it'll, it'll impact me, and it'll give me, um, it'll give me encouragement, and it'll challenge me, and it's good. It shows us what faith looks like. It's very practical. We know that faith in Christ is the foundation of our salvation, but what does that really mean? Um, it, it, it starts, I suppose, with just believing that Jesus is God, or believing in God, period, but that simple belief that there's a God isn't enough, and James even tells us demons believe that, and they tremble. People in America love to say they're religious, and plenty of us would say we believe in a God of some sort, and what do we do with that? We put things on our cars and magnets on our fridge, and that's all fine, but I love that the book of James says, here's what it really looks like. Um, I titled this morning's message, uh, So Are You Religious?, and it kind of came from a little story that really hit me hard several years ago when I was just with a group of people at work, um, and somebody, 
I don't know how, how something about church came up, and, and uh, um, I mentioned something about the church I go to, and a, a, a friend of mine, that I'd, I'd, a woman I'd known kind of on a professional basis for a few years, she kind of turned to me and she said, huh, Bible church, thought you were Mormon. <laughs> wow. Missed something there. Um, so we, we throw the word religious around, and people will say, yes, that's a religious fellow, or she really is a religious person for whatever reason. Are you religious? Religion requires faith, there's no doubt. And if you want to see what faith looks like, you can read through the book of James, and he shows us how people of faith work in church. He shows us how people of faith teach and instruct and how they go to work each day, how they pray, how they do a lot of things. And kind of like the book of Proverbs treats wisdom like a, a diamond, you know, where it holds a diamond up and turns it and twists it, and you see the facets and the sparkles and the rainbows. James takes faith and does that, and he holds it up, and he says, look at faith from this angle, and here's what it looks like, and turn it over, and here's what it looks like, and then consider it in this part of your life, and here's what it looks like. And I love that. So, let's take a little facet or two out of James and just turn it around a little bit this morning and see what we can see reflected there. I'm going to read James 1, 19 through 27, and then we'll walk together through those verses. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And Father, I just ask that you would open this, this scripture to us this morning and that your truth would teach all of us. God, may your spirit be real and present, and it may, may it work on our hearts, even as the word works on our ears. God, make us into doers who worship you and whose religion is true. In Christ's precious name. So, as we open this text up, I would encourage you to start at the beginning. It's usually a good place to start. But pay attention to the first words. Don't gloss over introductory phrases in Scripture. There are no throwaways in the Bible. Know this, my beloved brothers, is how James starts. When right out of the gate, we can see there's something important going on here. Know this, not consider, or what if, or 
let's ponder for a while. Know this. Pay attention and remember what I'm going to tell you. But know this, my beloved brothers. Whatever is going to come next, James wants to remind his audience that he loves them and he shares a common faith with them. There are plenty of ways that James could address his audience. He reminds them that they are brothers, and of course, we would add sisters in our modern age, and they share a common bond with the Holy Spirit. Now, perhaps James realizes, we don't really know, but perhaps at the time he was writing this, he realized that many, many more people through the ages would hear this letter of his. For whatever reason, he says, I want you to know, as you read these words, I love you and remember them. And then he says, be quick to hear and slow to speak. Okay? Don't talk too much. Be careful to listen and listen well. Consider this challenge to us in light of modern culture and the way that we work in our society. How often do we speak too quickly and listen rarely, if ever? And do we even see this kind of thing modeled for us? What does it look like to speak slowly but to listen quickly? Movies and television and books, for those of you that are looking for a criticism of electronics here, no, um, How does dialogue work? How do personal interactions work? We love the witty comeback. We want that rapid-fire dialogue with the the jab timed just right so that it'll stop a person in their tracks and make them rethink their whole way of life up to that very moment. It's what we say that counts in the plots. Who listens? We take lines, we reenact them, we memorize them, we use them all the time, and they become colloquialisms of our day. Do we ever see our swashbuckling hero stop the action in midstream, take a friend aside, and engage him in real listening? What would that look like? From William Shakespeare to 1980s sitcoms to today's romantic comedies, the plot twist is based on the misunderstood phrase because somebody didn't listen carefully enough at just that right moment. If only our dull-witted hero had stopped to listen when she said his socks didn't match instead of jumping to too many conclusions and thinking their love was forever at an end. But that wouldn't be a good plot. And so we take our turn of phrase and our quick dialogue and we build. But James says, no. Don't think that you are to be so quick to listen or to to, uh, speak that you can't listen. Be quick to hear. I can think of several words I might have used there had I been writing them instead of quick to hear. Be sensitive. Be attentive, be ready, be willing. How do we listen quickly? It just doesn't seem to fit. We need to learn. Hearing does not mean having your ears on. With the exception of 
maybe three or four people in this room, we all have our ears on all the time. There are a few who have the advantage of being able to turn them off. <laughs> but hearing is not picking up sound waves. Hearing is not letting the waves of, of the noise wash over us. Hearing is about paying attention. It's about body language. It's about nonverbals. It's about doing the things that we need to do to make sure we understand what's being communicated. And yes, it's about sound waves. Be slow to speak. Keep your mouth shut. Thinking about talking? Think again. Think twice. Then don't. These great books, these movies, these plays, the wonderful speeches always come at the big climax. Everybody gets inspired to stand fast in the heat of battle. The old man, who seemed to know nothing for three quarters of the plot, takes our young hero aside and gives him that speech of wisdom that he needs so that he can dash off as fast as possible and slay the villain on his way to saving the girl, all because of a great speech. Those are scripts. I have news for you. They have writers. They have editors. We don't. We don't get rehearsals. We don't get retakes. We don't get to say something and then take it back because it didn't quite work. I work with words for a living. Many of the people I work with use them far too much. Say less, listen more, and be slow to speak. But James goes on and he says, not only that, be slow to anger. And to me, this is a fascinating connection. Why do we connect quick listening and slow speaking with getting angry? Is it possible that when we don't listen, when we do speak, perhaps when we let our mouth run on just a tad ahead of our brain, that perhaps we provide an opening for anger? I could relate to that. Look at verse 20. James gives us his reasoning. Why to be slow to anger? Because man's anger does not produce the righteousness of God. Think about this, a situation when you've been angry in the past. Some of you, I know, have to think hard. Think about it. Was it something that your parents did, your children, something you saw in the news or an injustice you heard about to someone else or perhaps an injustice even to you, and you reacted in anger? Did it work? Did your anger bring about justice? in God's sense of the word justice. Did unrighteousness become righteousness? No. Our anger as mere mortals does not produce the kind of righteousness that God expects. In the heat of the moment, when we are prepared to spew forth some sort of unfiltered rampage, we think we can make things right. Our brain says, just say it and it'll work. But it's not true. And James says, that should be far from us. So, if anger is a temptation that's common to all of us, because it is, in some measure or another, and if James says, we need to be slow to anger, how do we deal with this? What do we do? Well, James takes us on a very interesting step 
in our journey here in dealing with this temptation. Verse 21, James says, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Now think back just a little bit here to who James is writing to. And if you weren't here last week, it's up in verse 1 of this chapter. He's writing to believers and beloved brothers. He says that right when he opens this passage, remember? Beloved brothers. These are Christ followers. These are people James loves with the love of Christ. How does he suddenly tell them to get rid of their filthiness and their rampant wickedness? Would there really be that much sin in the first century right after Jesus left the planet? Yeah, there would. Would there really be that much sin right here, right now, today? Yeah, there would. And how did we get from anger to filthiness and rampant wickedness? That seems like a leap. I would suggest that you consider how sin operates. Our anger does not produce righteousness, but we must cast aside whatever it is, the sin that weighs us down. And know this, sin produces death, but Satan never relies on a single shot. Sin doesn't work one at a time. Remember David, one of the most famous of sinners, um, and his famous sin was with Bathsheba, adultery. And we all who've heard the story remember that. But do we remember that he lied, that he murdered, that he betrayed one of his best military commanders? Do we remember the hypocrisy that he showed when he was confronted by Nathan the prophet who gave him an anonymous sinner as an example? And that sinner was really David. And David said, that man should be killed. Do we remember all of that? Because the sin wasn't merely adultery. Sins never travel alone. And anger is one that can produce a mob when it comes to sins. Anger can cause us to hurt people, to lie to deceive. Anger can cause us to be foolish. Anger can cause us to do so many things. And James says, yes, be slow to anger, but at the same time, be ready to set aside whatever the sin is that weighs you down. And praise be to God that there is a solution. James says in verse 21, receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. The word that saves our souls, that was the source of our salvation, but that's not all. It shows us our sin and it shows us a Savior, but it doesn't stop there. It is the source of life. It's, it's what nourishes us every day on this planet. And James says, that word, that's where you go if you want to deal with this filthiness, this rampant wickedness, and yes, even this anger. James knew that we would forget this. 
He knew that we needed to be reminded. He knew if we speak without listening, if we hammer out sin with our own anger, if we dwell in, in filthiness, if we dwell in wickedness, all while trying to say that we follow Christ, then our religion is false. And we can say all the words we want to say, and we can put the act on, but if that's what really characterizes us, then we're merely name droppers. Some would drop the name of Allah as their religion. Some would drop the name of Buddha as their religion. We would not drop the name of Jesus as our religion and say, that's who we follow. But that name dropping is useless if we don't live out that faith that we profess. Coming to church is great. Singing songs is wonderful. Wearing clever slogans on our t-shirts and our wrists is fine and good. But it doesn't matter if we allow the anger and the filth of sin to characterize who we really are. Because then it's merely an outward religion, a facade. And so James says, if this is who you are, if your religion is false, there is a way to be transformed. If your acts outwardly are false, if there's no root, if there's no fruit, where is the hope? Can it be transformed? Yes. Look at verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. This is a great word picture. Just try to imagine the folly of a man who can never remember what he looks like. He looks and he sees and he turns and he forgets. It seems impossible. I'm sure that all of us sitting here now can remember something of what we looked like this morning, the last time we looked in a mirror. I'm sure we all looked in a mirror at one point. And even if you don't remember where every hair was or, you know, every little uh, mark on your face, even if you weren't capturing that image, you can sit here this morning and kind of rate your scale on a 1 to 10, right? How good did you look before you left the house? Perfect 10, maybe. Um, a reasonably good 8, probably. A passable 5, you know, we all do this with ourselves, and we know, sitting here today, where we fit on the scale. What would it look like if, if we couldn't? Where would we be? It would be strange. Um, I, I've known people in my profession who've had memory issues, and it's interesting to see how they, they compensate for this. They'll develop these little systems, uh, notebooks or post-its or um, clues that they leave around the house to trigger themselves into certain memories. I suppose if you really had this issue where you could look in a mirror, turn away, and immediately forget, you'd have to develop some way of remembering before you left the house. What did I look like? Was my hair combed? Was I dressed appropriately? You know, just makes sense. I suppose we could develop a little gadget that 
could snap an image of us whenever and wherever we wanted to. And if we were concerned about remembering what we were doing, we could always, you know, add the feature of sharing those little images with our family and friends and sending them around every minute of every day, constantly, for any reason, no reason at all. Thankfully, none of us is quite that vain, maybe. Sorry, complete tangent. Okay, back to James. If we, if we look at James, God has provided us with a gadget, a memory device, a way to take a spiritual selfie anytime you need it. It's his word. And James says, look into the word. Hold it up. Take this thing God has given you. Let it be a mirror. We can use this thing to see ourselves as God sees us. We can use this thing to to see ourselves through his eyes. But sometimes we make the mistake of looking and knowing and then putting it down and walking away. And therein lies our weakness. James says if you want to use the mirror of God effectively, don't just hear the word, but do the word. The transformation from false religion on the one side to true religion, there's no mystery. There's no code to decode or, or right to perform. Or It's just read the word and then do the word. James says, by hearing and doing What you do is you allow this perfect law to begin this transformation process. Verse 25 tells us, the one who looks into this perfect law, this law of liberty and perseveres, he will be blessed in his doing. Look into the perfect law. And there's a phrase in this verse 25 that I love, the law of liberty. We don't talk that way, really. James uses that description, and and again, there's no throwaways in the Bible. Don't gloss over that. What does it mean to have a law of liberty? Much of our modern culture has a wrong view of Christianity in the Bible. We know that. They see our God as a God who wants slaves, not children. They see Christianity as a, a list of requirements, do's and don'ts and thou shalt's and thou shalt not's. They see our God as a God who's just waiting for us to cross that line so he can squash us. That's not our God. God's law does not shackle us. God's law was not designed to keep us a prisoner. We looked last week at verses 14 and 15, which talked about the darkness of our hearts and the desires that we have tempting us into sin. It's that darkness that condemns us. It's our desire that gives birth to sin and the sin that gives birth to death. But this law, this law brings freedom. It brings us freedom by showing us our need for a Savior. Without this law, we might never realize how deep our sin goes or how much we are in desperate need of a Savior. 
without this law, we might deceive ourselves into thinking that we are truly good or that we are truly God. We are not. This is where the transformation begins. If our natural tendency is to produce false religion of fancy words and quick speech, then we, we, we need a way to transform into something else. Consider Psalm 119. You don't have to turn there. I, I think it's up on the screen, and I'll read it real quick here. It's just, it's a great tribute to the law. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. I ask you, does that sound like the word of a prisoner trying to break free? Or does that sound like the celebration of a man who knows where freedom comes from? As we look into the law, God's going to show us we need to change. God's going to mold us and shape us. And at times, he's going to cut us and carve us. And at other times, he's going to prod us and just gently move us. But he will not let us rest in a false religion that's merely a facade. His word is powerful. Because of the good news of the cross, we can rejoice in the power of that word. We look into the law, we see ourselves through God's eyes. And we can fall at the cross and find mercy. When Jesus walked on this earth, he said, I have come as a physician, but I have not come for those who are well. They need no physician. Jesus said, I call to come the sinners, not the righteous. Last week, we looked at the first half of James that talks about how we can blame God for our sin, just like we can blame the light bulb for creating the darkness. We can say, you turn on the light and it made things dark in the shadows. No. It was the brightness of the light of God that showed us where the darkness was hiding. We can blame the law in the same way and say, this law makes me a sinner. No. This law is the tool that this physician uses to find that sickness and to begin to take it out. And it's by the grace that we receive through faith that we're healed by our great physician. Amen. If we want to be transformed from a false, empty, dead shell to a vibrant, living, spirit-filled life, then we turn to Jesus Christ, the great physician, to be healed. Some would ask, how do I know? This all sounds well and good. There's a great physician who brings healing. And, and I would caution you that sometimes that healing comes as a hard pill to swallow. But if I'm ready and willing to transform, how do I know when that starts? How do I know what that looks like? Well, we have a picture. We have a picture of what false religion versus true religion looks like. And it's in verses 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he's religious, does not bridle his tongue, 
but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God to visit widows and orphans, to keep oneself unstained from the world. James recognizes this distinction between false religion and true religion. We've talked about that. The world is full of religions. We've managed to worship all manner of different things, mostly ourselves. What's the sign that your religion is worthless? And how do you know when that transformation has begun to turn your false religion into true religion? Well, the sign that our, our religion is false is the tongue that we do not control. One who speaks too much, too quickly, or too often may be doing so out of a deceptive heart, a heart that does not remember what it looks like according to the mirror of God's law. Remember? Slow to speak, quick to listen. And when you get those flip-flopped, you have to stop and ask yourselves, is there something here I need reflected back to me by the mirror of God's law? to know whether this is true religion or false. But there is a pure religion, and James tells us. There's a kind of religion God loves. It's not brought about by our quick wit or clever tongues. It looks like this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. Orphans and widows... Seems a bit out of place to me. Sort of like it seemed a bit out of place to start talking about anger and filthiness when we're talking about listening and talking, but that makes sense now. Why orphans and widows? How is that a measure of pure religion? Scripture's full of admonitions to care for the orphan and the widow. One example, I would offer Isaiah chapter 1. In fact, turn to Isaiah chapter 1. It's, um, if you're following along in your Bible, it's back, uh, the middle of, of the Bible is usually Psalms, and then shortly after that, Proverbs, and then Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1. Now, this is one example of orphans and widows mentioned in the Bible, other than in James. Skip down to verse 13. It says this. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. No moon, new, sorry, new moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Sound familiar? It should. This is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah. God is talking to the people of Israel and saying, I have grown weary of your religion. 
They have assemblies, they have feasts, they have ceremonies, they have all manner of things they do. They they pray, they raise their hands, they sing and dance, but God cannot see their worship because their sin is in the way. God says, you need to cleanse yourselves. If you want to come to me and if you want your religion to be true and if you want your religion to please me, cleanse yourselves, O Israel. God offers a solution. First he says, cleanse yourselves and then do good and then seek justice and then care for the orphan and the widow. But what does this thing mean, cleanse yourself? If you're going through rituals and these rituals involve sacrifice and prayer and isn't that cleansing? No. Because you can do the ceremony and you can do the ritual. And it can mean nothing because the other six days a week, your life can be characterized by something that would look nothing like what God's law shows us. And James is going to show us, if you continue to read, faith doesn't look different than God's law. Faith looks like God's law. But before we completely leave Isaiah we get a glimpse of what this cleansing might look like. Verse 18. Come now, says God. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Isaiah came and he brought a message to the people of Israel. It was a fairly clear message. Repent or perish. You don't get much clearer. Repent. Turn from your evil ways. Seek God's forgiveness. That was Isaiah's message. But Isaiah didn't stop there. He said, and I will tell you how this will work. Isaiah is one of these books that we, we say is full of messianic prophecy. Messianic prophecy is the kind of prophecy that tells us what's the Messiah going to look like. See, people knew that God would send a Savior. People knew that God would send someone who would save, but they didn't exactly know what that was going to look like. And as you start in Genesis, way back in the Garden of Eden, God starts giving us glimpses and clues to say, here's what this is going to look like. And every step along the way, the, clear, the clues get a little bit more focused and a little bit sharper. And so throughout the history of the Old Testament, you, you start to get a better understanding of what this coming Messiah is going to look like. And Isaiah plays a big part in focusing our vision on what the Messiah will do. Verse 18 is one of those prophecies. God promises that somehow this plan of his to save his people will turn their sins from bright red to dazzling white. If you've ever tried to paint White over red, you know how impossible that can be. But, Isaiah says, this Messiah will give himself as a ransom. He will be beaten and pierced and bloodied and ultimately given over to death. But that death, that is what will make this ultimate transformation. It's what will take this sin that now entangles us and 
make it white as snow. So what does true religion look like? Transformed from false religion. It starts with this work of this Messiah that Isaiah promises to cleanse us from sin to life. And along the way, it doesn't get bogged down in these outward rituals and these outward signs. There's nothing wrong with ritual and tradition and ceremony. It can be a beautiful thing, but if that's all there is, it's false. And James says, no, it's deeper than that. James says it shows itself by going after the orphan and the widow. They were the most in need in James' day. These were those who were needy and desperate and had no way to provide for themselves. And James says, true religion shows itself as love poured out for these people. Because our religion is not something we do on our outside. It's something that God takes hold of us and causes us to act from the inside out. False religion is the act of trying to make ourselves look more religious by doing things on the outside, but true religion is the act of taking what we've been given, this unconditional love, this mercy and grace of God, and then showing it to others who desperately need it in a way that meets them where they're at and reaches the needs they have and then lifts them up and says, not me, not my outward appearance, God, the Father in heaven. This is who provides. All of this sounds good and maybe a bit inspiring, but how do we get there? Well, we get there as the Spirit uses this word of ours to chip away, to poke, to prod, to cut, to carve. And, and as, as we kind of wrap up our, our brief time in James, I would pray that each of us would somehow be challenged by this to say, where is my religion false and how can I make it true? The Holy Spirit convicts each of us differently. And the challenge to anybody who stands up here and tries to open up the Word before a diverse body like this is, I don't know what the Holy Spirit's going to do with His Word in your life. And so, the points of application are always the part that people start scribbling on because they want to know, how do I do this? But look, if, if I give you a one, two, three... And you say, that's what I'm going to do when I go home is step one, step two, step three. Then have I given you another false religion? And I don't want to do that. So I'll give you some options. And I'll give you some places to start. And I'll tell you a little bit about how this word has impacted me. And maybe that's helpful. And maybe that's encouraging. But my prayer really is, if the Spirit had can use this word to speak to you, don't squelch what the Spirit would do in your life. Go and ask God to use this word to change you. So, a few points to ponder, a few things to consider. First, 
Receive the Word of God as it comes to you, and ask the Lord to soften your heart to do what it says. Just as I've explained, the Spirit works, and God may show you a specific relationship that needs attention. He may show you an area of sin that needs to be surgically removed by the great physician. Don't squelch that. Embrace it and let the Spirit act and let this law of liberty reflect. Number two, get help listening rather than speaking. Perhaps you're just not a good listener. Perhaps that doesn't come naturally to you. Find someone who is and open up yourself to being accountable. Accountability can be key. Give somebody permission to call you out. Somebody who spends time with you and knows you well and has opportunity. Some of us are too tempted to say, you know, that's just the way I am. I'm just not good at that. I've never understood that excuse from Christians. Never. God never leaves any of his children how he found them. That's the gospel. So, if you need help listening, find someone who can help you. Number three, get help with anger if you need it. Sort of goes along with number two. Are there circumstances you know that make you angry? Are there people you interact with who just bring up something? Well, there are ways to deal with it, and I would encourage you, just like in listening, to seek out someone who can help you to be accountable. And I can offer you just a piece of personal encouragement. I know someone and, and someone I know well who's dealt with this over the last few years and, and dealt with it well. God's Word and prayer and Spirit, all of these things can work, but it it took time and tears and a lot of vulnerability. See, anger is one of those things that hides way down inside. And if you don't open yourself up and be vulnerable, it's hard to get at it and get it out. But God can do miraculous things even with angry people. Number four, know the Word and do the Word. Remember, don't be hearers, be doers. But before you can do, you've got to hear Really. So, read it. Play it in your car. Have somebody read it to you. I don't care. But you've got to get the Word in your brain. And it's easy to be lulled into saying, I go to church and I go to Bible study, and I get it. No. That's like you get one cup of coffee a week, and you think that you don't need to drink anything else all week. No. This is just a shot in the arm. It's a boost. But you've got to soak yourself. You've got to drink in the Word on a day-to-day basis because you can't do it until you hear it. But don't put it down. Hear it and then do it. And number five, find an outlet for God's love and mercy to pour out of you. This may be the most challenging. Pure religion requires us to show mercy to those who need it. That's what James says. If you consume grace all the time, your religion is incomplete. Remember, James is writing to beloved brothers. We can be Christians and still not 
practice true religion? Who are the orphans and widows of the day? Maybe that's who you help. Maybe there's others. We are the kind of people who must go out and show them that mercy. You need to serve. You need to get engaged. Scripture says, we who are saved are the body of Christ. I fear that there are members of the body who may be in danger of becoming tumors, ones who consume all the resources and drag the body down without ever being a productive part of it. That's not what we were meant for. Now, some of you are saying, I don't know what I was meant for. I've never figured that out, or I'm kind of new at this. If you don't know what you were meant for in God's kingdom and His purpose, let's talk. One thing this church has been blessed with, we've been blessed with a lot of great leaders willing to say, I can help you get engaged in a way that God will use you. And so, that's not an excuse. We must practice true religion by taking the grace God has given us and pouring it out of us by serving others. Let's pray. Father God, this is a dangerous place to leave us, knowing that we have things that we must accomplish. And God, we will be distracted as soon as we leave this place and taken away from what your word has taught us. So I pray that your spirit would not let us rest. And I pray that the, the word would take root in our hearts and transform us, God. Take the facade of false religion away from us and don't let us wear masks to show that we worship a God who is real and active and good. But God, transform us so that our religion is one that people see and people say, sing the praises of God our Father through Christ who strengthens us. Amen.